On reading the deeply disturbing report, I had obviously a range of emotions of uh, anger, of sadness, of, of frustration, um, of grief. Um, it is extremely troubling. Uh, and uh, as I've said from the very beginning of this, uh, we need to do a better job of supporting our seniors in long-term care uh, right across the country through this pandemic and beyond. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That, of course, is the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reacting earlier in the week to the release of that horrifying report from the Canadian military on the state of long-term care homes in Ontario, where the soldiers had been set uh, sent in to take over and help out through this pandemic. And what they witnessed in those care homes was horrifying infestations of cockroaches senior citizens lounging around in soiled diapers residents who had tested positive for covid19 wandering around the facility and in mixing with other residents who had not tested positive just a horrifying report and it has triggered uh, a lot of soul searching and reviewing about long-term care facilities right across this country, not just in Ontario, not just in Quebec. Trudeau is peppered with questions about the long-term care system once again this morning. He uh, had a meeting last night with the provincial premiers by phone where they discussed long-term care. One thing to remember is this is provincial jurisdiction. Trudeau now asking the provinces to tell him what they want to fix the long-term care system. We've got an absolutely packed show for you coming up, and we're going to focus on the long-term care issue right now. My guest is Stephanie Smith. She is the president of the BCGEU. It's a union that represents uh, long-term care workers. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. What, what, what are you hearing from the people who, that you represent who work in these care homes, and, and do you think that the situation in British Columbia is, is better than some of the horror stories we're hearing elsewhere in the country? Well, uh, as you mentioned, the the report out of Ontario is absolutely gut-wrenching. And, you know, we haven't been without our challenges here in BC as well in long-term care uh, residential homes. Um, We've seen a few stories that have come out. And, you know, we know pre-pandemic, even before the pandemic hit, that uh, there were some long-term care residences that um, had to go into the administratorship of our health authority because the private operators um, were not, uh, you know, to be brutally honest, the wages have been driven down so low, they were having a very difficult time hiring adequate numbers of staff to provide the level of care that seniors not only need, but absolutely deserve. What do you think needs to be done? I mean, obviously, you've got a crisis situation here flowing out of this report. There's a lot of pressure for action and reform. And I think in a lot of cases, it's not really rocket science. I think what it need, I think you need better trained staff. You need more staff. You need more money being put into the system. Uh, you need a robust regulatory environment with inspections of these homes to make sure that uh, they're being run properly. But that takes money and it takes political will. Is that what you feel is required right now? Well, absolutely. And, and I think what we're really learning, Mike, is governments matter. Governments really matter. 
So, um, you know, again, uh, we've sort of had a patchwork system here in BC. We had a, a previous government that um, changed a lot of things in our healthcare system, particularly around seniors' care. Um, you know, we've seen the contract flipping. We've seen, you know, private ownership. Um, you know, uh, and and prior to the pandemic, our government was looking at community home support, community health care for seniors and and the infirm and started bringing that back under our health authorities, back into the public realm. And, you know, what we believe and, you know, what our national union is calling for and others have certainly picked up the mantle is we believe that seniors' care needs to be under the Canada Canada Health Act. Mm -hmm. And ideally, while it's not a perfect solution, we think it should be in the public realm. It uh, should not be in private. We need to remove the motive for profit-making in any care situation. And um, we believe that being public, again, while not a perfect solution, certainly provides for greater oversight, as you said, a lot more transparency and a greater level of accountability. Okay, could we not continue with a a private contracting out model with robust regulatory systems in place, inspections of the homes to make sure that seniors are being treated properly? Why does it have to be public, in in your opinion? We've seen COVID-19 outbreaks in public facilities and private facilities, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. And and that's why so I'm saying it's not a... So I mean, like a public, a, a public facility is, is not a guarantee uh, that we're going to prevent outbreaks of a virus, for example. No, that's absolutely true. But one of the reasons why we've seen outbreaks the way we have, and, you know, again, we've been very fortunate in British Columbia, but, you know, as of yesterday, we had 164 deaths due to COVID-19, most of those in long-term care facilities, and each one of those is, is a person who is missed and mourned. And one of the reasons why we've seen those outbreaks is because the wages are so low in the non-public sector that workers work in multiple facilities. And that's where this single site um, order has come from, from the provincial health officer and, and our minister of health, who, you know, I can't speak enough about uh, what we're seeing happening by, by both of those individuals. Um, but it's because of workers moving between multiple sites trying to earn a living because the wages are just so low in the private sector. Right, right. And of course, the provincial government, as you mentioned, has stepped in to put a stop to that so that people are not moving around from different facilities and potentially spreading the virus. So now you must work in one home only. The, the province has also stepped in to increase the salary and the take-home pay of some of these workers who are be- being paid less in the private facilities. Do you think those measures should be made permanent? Absolutely. Um, you know, the report that Minister Dix gave yesterday, um, just under 500 of the homes um, have now gone under the single site order. But again, uh, you know, we know from our staff who are working on this with the other unions who represent members in long-term care, one of the big challenges is in the private sector, especially if they're non-unionized, there is no transparency. There's no access to their books. We don't know what their wage grids are. And so trying to to level the classifications and the various positions in these homes is very challenging. Okay, I wonder, speaking to Stephanie Smith, she's the president of the BC Government Employees Union, uh, representing a lot of the workers in these care homes. When you mentioned the idea about bringing these care homes under the, 
the Canada Health Act, so essentially bringing them into the Medicare system. Does that require the provinces surrendering some control over, over these facilities to the feds? And is that, a, is that a political barrier or problem? You know, I, I, I don't know, uh, <clears throat> sorry, regulation that deeply, but uh, currently my understanding is that healthcare is, uh, is a provincial, provincial jurisdiction, as you mentioned right. at the top of the show. Um, but bringing it under the Canada Healthcare Act uh, enshrines certain oversight regulations that um, I, we believe would, would at least in some way level um, services ac- across the country similarly to access to public health and all those other um, healthcare, um, healthcare, I've lost my word, but yes, other healthcare facilities. It, it feels like we've reached a tipping point on this, this issue. We've heard a lot about the state of these care homes for many, many years, but now I think the release of this report by the Canadian military has put a very bright light on it, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the days ahead. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about long-term care in Canada. It really does feel like a turning point here. The release of that report by the Canadian military, the strong reaction to it. Justin Trudeau asked a lot of questions about long-term care in his daily news conference this morning. Have a listen to this. Now, listen carefully to the question here. And you see that you'll hear the reporter point out that, you know, this guy, he talks in a lot of sound bites, but it doesn't really give a lot of specifics. And then listen to his answer about reform of long-term care. This is Trudeau this morning. You mentioned, uh, obviously, that soldiers are, they blew the whistle on the horrors that are going on in old, in seniors' homes that a lot of families already know about, but they're not uh, the long-term solution. Now, your letter here that you put out today after meeting with the Premiers, um, you talk about agreeing to take action. I haven't heard any action. Um, I mean, you can't go back on the soldiers because you say they're not the long-term solution. So can you be very specific? What is your action? Because people actually, when you say we're there to help, they actually want to know the details. Is it more money with strings attached? Is it national standards? I mean, what do those words mean? We recognize fully uh, that uh, long-term care and senior care is a provincial area of jurisdiction. But all Canadians are united in wanting to see better support for our seniors right now and in the years to come. So we have said at the federal level that we will be there to support the provinces, both in the immediate, whether it's more rent money or more resources or whatever it is that the provinces need to get control once again over their long-term care facilities. Uh, There are a number of provinces across the country where, uh, although there have been challenges, there are not nearly the scale of of problems that we've seen in other places. Uh, So we recognize there is a great variance across the country. But as a federal government, our job is to look out for all Canadians and make sure that everywhere across the country people are supported and we will be there depending on what the provinces need, what their situation is, to make sure that all seniors are protected. Okay, really sort of turning it back on the provinces there. So saying and promising action, referring to possibly putting more money on the table, but really asking the provinces to come forward and tell him what do you need to repair this long-term care home system? Let's check in now with Linda Silas. She is the pres- president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think needs to be done to fix this? 
Well, your previous reporter said uh, it's clear we need fundamental principles and funding with strings attached. Uh, we've seen this over and over. And uh, the last two days when the reports came out uh, that the military were the whistleblower, every right. advocate for seniors were shaking their heads because I don't know how many reports we all wrote to provincial and federal governments that long-term care or seniors were in danger. And now a group of military writes a uh, 15-page report, and they're ready to act. So at least they're ready to act. Yeah, they're ready to act. But like you were saying that when people were saying, oh, my God, they were expressing shock at at Mm -hmm. the contents of this report from the Canadian military, that you're saying that this has been kind of a an open secret in Canada for a long time. And we've already known a lot about this. It's like groups like yourself have been sounding the alarm on this. There's been tons of investigative reporting done by Global News and lots of other media outlets into the conditions of these homes. I mean, we knew this stuff already. Oh, exactly. The only reassuring words in the Prime Minister eloquent eloquent answer is, what do they need to get control? Well, what they need to get control for the province and territories is eliminate the for-profit business approach to long-term care. And as your previous uh, guest, uh, Stephanie Smith, said, we need to bring long-term care similar to uh, hospital care under the Canada Health Act, or at least under the same fundamental principle. Because regardless if you get your care into a long-term care facility, it means you need health care services. And, or that if you go for heart surgery in the hospitals, we should, as Canadians, all have the same kinds of protection. All right, speaking to Linda Silas, Canadian Federation of Nurses, have a listen to this here now. This is uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, and, and this mil- this report from the Canadian military that identified these horrifying conditions in these homes. These were nursing homes in Ontario. Now, here's the Ontario Premier reacting to that report. The reports they provided us were heartbreaking. They were horrific. It's shocking that this can happen here in Canada. It's gut-wrenching. And reading those reports was the hardest thing I've done as Premier. Okay, this is a guy, Linda who runs a government that has a whole platoon of inspectors that are supposed to be going into these homes and inspecting them, right? So why is he shocked? He's got a cabinet minister responsible for long-term care. Why are they all shocked? I don't know. Uh, first, they are not doing any inspections. Uh, even after the wet law for a case in Ontario, where the number one recommendation, the one of the main recommendations, you need to be in the long-term care sector often. You need to do more inspection. They had about nine last year. So uh, our message oh. to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is Premier Ford and Premier Legault have failed. 80% of the debts uh, for, from COVID-19 uh, have been uh, seniors, have been in long-term care sector. And Quebec and uh, Ontario have about 6,000 of those deaths on 7,000 across the country. Your, your province done very well, uh, just what, under 200 uh, deaths. Like, right. there's something wrong with those two provinces. Okay, do you think this comes down, we just got a minute left, does this come down to money and political will? This is going to cost a lot of money. I mean, there have been, there have been some estimates that it could cost $10 billion a year. 
to bring long-term mm-hmm. care, to treat long-term care homes like hospitals. That's a lot of money. Do you need the political will to, to raise that money? The money is already being spent, Mike. Right now it's going into the big pockets of some owners of these nursing homes. Families pay a fortune for their loved ones to be taken care of. We need to redirect that money to the care and dignity of seniors. And until there's political will, our seniors are not safe in a lot of these homes. And we as Canadians owe it to them. All right, here we go with back to school. On Monday, BC schools getting set to resume classes, at least on a part-time and a voluntary basis. Will you be sending your kids back to school on Monday? Get set to call me up on that. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the turnout is for uh, schools on Monday. Well, how many kids will come back? How many teachers will come back? I know there's a lot of teachers out there who are a little nervous about returning to class. British Columbia, a bit of an outlier in opening the schools again, even if it's only on a temporary, on a part-time voluntary basis, just about every other province in the country, with the exception of Quebec, has pretty much shut down the schools for the rest of the year and canceled the remainder of the school year. In British Columbia, we're back to class on Monday. A lot of other provinces are going to be watching closely as British Columbia kids head back to school. Let's check in with Matt Westfall now, president of the Surrey Teachers Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Matt. Not too bad, thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you for coming on. The last time I talked to you, you were raising a lot of concerns about back to class. You were hearing from a lot of teachers who were worried about going back to work, especially if they had underlying health conditions or maybe they had some family members who had immune-compromised health conditions and that kind of thing. What are you hearing from teachers now and parents and students now as we get set to go back to class on Monday? What I'm hearing from teachers is a lot of mixed feelings, I would say. On the one hand, they miss their students and they're looking forward to being able to see some of them in person instead of through a screen. At the same time, there's also a fair bit of apprehension about how next week is going to work in terms of we don't know how many students are going to show up. We don't know how many staff will be there. Will we have to be shuffling people around? And how will all these health and safety protocols actually work in practice? Yeah, what are you hearing on the the health and safety, for example? We're told, for example, that the schools are undergoing a deep cleaning and there will be a lot of surface cleaning to prevent any transmission of the virus. How confident are you that the schools are going to be squeaky clean on Monday? Because I I know that even under the best of times, sometimes schools are less than sparkling. Yeah, and I think people are still struggling with that because, as you say, before they weren't always as clean as people thought they should be. I know that the districts are really working hard and with all the support staff to try to juggle schedules and so that there will be enough people there, caretakers during the day to be able to clean high high touch surfaces twice a day, to do deep cleaning every day and so on. So we're we're hoping that that all that those pieces will be in place so that those things will happen. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be good for kids to go back? I know I got two boys in high school I'm sending my kids back to school on Monday, and they'll only be they'll only be in class one day a week. I sometimes, on the one hand, wonder what's the point? Is it really worth it for another four days of instruction with just a month left of the school system if they're only going once a week? You know, is is it really worth it? On the other hand, I, I think that it would be better for them to maybe see their teachers, even if it's just for one day, and maybe to see their friends as well if they can maintain that physical distancing. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it worth it opening the schools again? 
I, I think I think parents are going to have to understand, and also students, that it's not going to be like a day at school before spring break. There's going to be fewer kids there. Your friends may not be there. You may not right. actually have your own teacher that you're working with. There could be mm-hmm. someone else supervising you. So, so things are going to be quite different whether you're in school or if you're not in school. The remote program that people have been receiving for the last two months may have to be scaled back to be able to make room for the time that's spent on the in-school program. At the same time, there are there are definitely students who they really need to be back in school, and, and there is provision for them to be back five days a week if they really need a lot of that extra help. Speaking of Matt Westfall, president of the Surrey Teachers Association, what are you hearing from teachers, Matt, in terms of some, if teachers have got a uh, compromised immune system, maybe you've got a teacher who's got diabetes or some other kind of chronic health condition, if they're worried about going back to class, and are all those teachers being accommodated if, if they inform their supervisor that, look, I'm worried about going back to school. Maybe I've got someone in my home, uh, uh, an immune-compromised child or relative or an elderly relative living with me. Are, are those teachers being told it's okay, you can work from home? Well, that's really up in the air, and there's a lot of inconsistency between school districts. In Surrey School District, I'm, I was told the number of 1,500 people, that's teachers, support staff, everyone, had requested accommodations to be able to continue working remotely, whether that's because wow. of childcare or their own medical conditions. So what Surrey is doing is everyone who put in, requested an accommodation, can continue working remotely next week while they try to process this mountain of applications. But it's really up in the air, and a lot of people don't know what will happen after that. And then they're having to adjust at the school level because all these people who won't be in the school. Okay, when you say 1,500 people had requested that accommodation, are you talking 1,500 teachers or teachers and other staff as well? That's that's all in. And, and last I spoke, they, that was one estimate that they gave. They don't. Yeah. They didn't actually have an exact number, but that's also support staff, teachers. There right. could be some administrative staff in there as well. What's what is that as a percentage of the total workforce? Uh, it's probably approximately twelve thousand employees. So it's it's a, it's a quite a high percentage. So fifteen hundred out of, out of twelve thousand. So a little more, ten, more than ten percent. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, if 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 that would appear to be enough people to staff the schools. Let's say you get a 50% turnout of kids, which I heard one estimate in the Vancouver school district was maybe some officials there were preparing for maybe half the kids to show up on Monday. Uh, is, is that what you think will happen? Maybe half the kids show up, or do you think it'll be more? I think, it, I think it'll be less. I mean, I think it less. depends on the district. Surrey, I think their, their guess right now is around 30%, but they're also wow. saying they're treating next week as almost being like the first week in September, where we, we don't know exactly where you're at in terms of how many people are there until later in the week. Okay. Do you, is this like a dry run for the fall? I've heard from some people wondering, why are we doing this, especially when other provinces have canceled the remainder of their school years? Now, British Columbia, I think, is doing better in flattening the curve of this virus than, uh, than provinces like Ontario and Quebec. But still, you just wonder what's the point for just one month. Do you think maybe this, the school districts are looking at this as kind of a practice run to see how it goes for the fall? I, I think they're trying to because the government has mandated that this has to happen. So they're kind of doing it as best they can on very short notice. Two weeks is not much time to get all the pieces in place for this. So I think they will probably learn some things. There's only so much you can learn, though, when if most of the students are not actually attending, it's not going to give us as much information as they might want to have for what September will be like. Okay, what is the recommendation from the teachers' union to teachers who are worried about this? Are they saying, go back to work, show up for work? 
Well, our recommendation is if you think you qualify for an accommodation, then talk to us and let the employer know. And if you don't and you're going to be in the school, then it's really important for the school health and safety committee to be very active in monitoring the situation. And if there's any issues and the protocols are not being followed, we have to get right on that. What happens if, God forbid, there's a, an outbreak or even, even if there's one positive in a school? What happens in that school? Is school shut down? It, it might. I, I don't the, I mean the district has a plan for that. That's what they did when there were a few cases before spring break connected with three Surrey schools. So they'd shut it down for a day and while they tried to sort out contacts and all that. So I'm, yeah. they'll have a protocol for that. So I, I think they'll probably want to be pretty aggressive in trying to make limit any further exposure as much as they can. Okay, what does your gut instinct tell you on this? The last time I talked to you, you said you weren't you weren't sure how you if you felt this was a good idea or not. What, what are your feelings now with uh, schools getting set to res- open again on Monday? Well, uh, I mean, we're all just going to have to do our best to make the best of it. It's you know, this yeah. decision was made by by the ministry, uh, so I, it's not really for me to say whether it's a good idea or not. Where everyone's Everyone's a professional. We're all going to have to do this as best we can. Make sure it's safe for students and staff. All right. Let's talk about Viva Las Vegas now. Now, Vegas has been pretty much a ghost town ever since the coronavirus hit. The the Strip has been pretty much shut down. The casinos, of course, shut down. But uh, the Nevada governor, Steve Sisolak, announcing earlier this week they are ready to start rolling the dice again in Vegas. Uh, Vegas casinos will be allowed to reopen on June 4th. So that's this coming Thursday. Vegas getting set to roll again. Of course, there will be a lot of rules in place for social distancing and to keep people safe. But Vegas getting set to reopen how is this going to work let's check in with michael goldstein now he's an award-winning writer for forbes magazine and lots of other outlets he's been writing about las vegas i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show hi michael hi michael good to hear from you yeah thanks a lot for doing this when was the last time you were in vegas yourself well i was um my wife and i visited las vegas on um, march between march 8th and march 10th and uh, we we thought that you know, we thought we didn't realize just uh, how bad the coronavirus thing was going to be, but yeah. we managed to have a pretty enjoyable weekend at the Wynn and at, at the Palms, although as we were leaving, things started to really fall apart. Yeah, yeah, it really turned into a ghost town uh, for the last few months, for sure. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Vegas. I enjoy getting there when I can. Uh, I think it's a fun place to, to visit for a little mini vacation, but... Uh, man, it's it must have been rough on Vegas with everything being shut down. You wrote a really excellent article on this for Forbes. What what is it? What has it been like for Vegas to be shut down? Well, look, I mean, the the town is based on tourism, travel, entertainment, fine dining, and you know, and uh, nightclubs. Right. So, which of those things have been open? The answer is, of course, none. Right. And the whole town is based on is really based on the hospitality industry. So, lots of people have been out of work. Lots of people have been, you know, collecting various forms of um, pandemic uninsurance. Um, you know, it's been it's obviously been very rough for the town. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the plan to re- reopen Vegas now, Michael. So this is going to launch next week. How many casinos are going to reopen next week? Do we know? Well, 
you know, uh, your call prompted me to actually write a story, which I'll be releasing at the end of today at some point, um, about Las Vegas' big comeback. It's, um, I heard on your news report uh, that, that your area is in Phase 2. Um, That's right. So they're basically calling this Phase 2 um, as well in Las Vegas, right. in the sense that they've been able to up the, the number of people in a gathering from 10 people to 50 people. So what is that going to mean? That's going to mean you can go to a bar, you can go to a, you know, you can go to a, a play blackjack or craps with a smaller number of people per table, obviously, but no clubs, no, um, no shows, not yet. Right. So how are they going to, I was reading about the craps tables, they're going to disinfect the dice. So how is that going to work? It's like if you're a new shooter coming out, you hand them a new set of dice that's been, what, wiped down with disinfectant? I, I think so, something to that effect. Um, it's To me, it's sort of a funny... I think Las Vegas is actually doing a pretty good job of this because as a travel journalist, I get a lot of information about various destinations trying to reopen. Yeah. And a lot of times these days, they they spend their time talking about the sanitation rather than... The, the, the sizzle, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So Las Vegas, I think, is doing an okay job of balancing those two things. Like MGM uh, just launched this thing called their full seven-point safety plan. Right. So that's going to include screening, temperature checks, mandatory masks for personnel. Guests will be strongly encouraged to wear the masks. Physical distancing with six-foot physical distancing policies throughout the resorts, um, hand-washing and hand sanitation. They're supposedly, according to NPM, interesting, they're, they're, uh, they're dealing with their HVAC controls and air quality to uh, increase the amount of outside air circulation, oh. which is obviously pretty key. And, you know, um, so they're, they're all making an effort. Um, I thought that one of the things that was, was interesting to me was that Wynn, I think, said that uh, if you have over a certain temperature, you won't be admitted into the resort. Wow. You know, they use those temperature guns, yeah. which obviously brings up a couple of questions. One, what is that uh, uh, if you're a paid guest, uh, <laughs> that creates a lot of trauma for the paid guest as well as for their accounting department <laughs> to turn, turn away paid guests. The other thing is that as we know, it gets pretty hot in Las Vegas in June and July. Right. And so if you're out walking on a strip or something like that, and you come back with an enhanced temperature, will they not let you in? Oh, so there's wow. a lot of questions, obviously. Yeah, there there sure are. And I'm thinking about some of the other casino games and how they're going to manage that. Like, for example, you know, people enjoy playing the slot machines in Vegas. Will they have cleaning crews going around all the slots? Like as soon as somebody stops playing a slot machine, someone goes in there and wipes that machine down or something? How is that going to work? Well, you know, that that's the implication. I mean, there, there's a lot of, basically, if you look at any of the, the you know, MGM, Caesars, uh, Venetian, they're all talking about their, their cleaning, their disinfectant, that, you know, they meet CDC standards or better. Um but, you know, look, we, we know very well that unless, unless the monkeys ran off with it, there's no vaccine yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was listening to your news item before about the monkeys stealing the, yeah. the coronavirus samples. Yeah. Um, and, 
you know that that to to any to to some extent any kind of travel. I mean, even just getting on a plane from from BC to to Las Vegas is going to require a certain amount of leap of faith. Yeah, for sure. I wonder how many people will be willing to to visit Vegas. You've got the governor saying that you're going to be safe. This is going to be one of the safest cities to visit because the cleanliness standards will be so stringent. But with so many things shut down, I wonder about the appeal for for tourists. Like, if you're not going to have any live sports, you're not going to have any nightclubs, you're not going to have like a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, Michael, that are the key drawing cards for a city like Las Vegas, will will not be available. What about the buffets? Will they still have buffets? <laughs> Vegas is famous for that. I, I think you'll be waiting a long time to, to eat yeah. at a Las Vegas buffet again. But but I think, look, let's, let's look at the positive side. First yeah. of all, um, I, I took a quick look at the coronavirus numbers for Nevada. And so far, you know, relatively, they're... I guess relatively decent. I mean, they've they've had less than eight thousand cases that have been tested for, and they've had less than four hundred deaths in the state of Nevada. That you know, any death is obviously terrible, but it's it's apparently not a hot spot. Um, and I think you know, I think I, I don't know how things are you know in BC, but certainly here and everywhere that people I've talked to, people are anxious to get out of their house, go somewhere, <laughs> go on a road trip. Um, and, and, you know, leave the cleaning and, you know, and cooking and everything else to someone else. And and Las Vegas is is a place that always has excelled at that. It sounds great. We'll see how it goes next week with Vegas set to reopen on June 4th. Michael, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Michael. Hope to, hope to chat again soon. I'm, I'm planning to go one of these days, uh, but, but for me, it's a road trip. So it's, I don't have to to brave the airport, so that's right. You're in Los. You're in L.A., right? Yeah, Los. It's a five-hour drive. So okay.